Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Home Field Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. I'm Dan Newman, and we thank you for once again listening to our Hello, Old Sports podcast. In this episode, we will pick up on last week's topic and discuss the heavyweight boxing championship and how it has declined over the last several decades. How are you today, Andrew? Doing all right, Dan. I'm uh, excited to get into a lot of the stuff that uh, we'll be talking about today. So we sort of, in the last episode, kind of laid the groundwork for this episode. We sort of starting with Jack Johnson and going all the way up through to Muhammad Ali, talked about some of the great moments of the heavyweight boxing championship, why they were so great, why they were so important. And we want to tell you the second half of the story this time around and talk about sort of our lifetimes, starting in the early to mid-80s and ending in the year 2020 and sort of give a give our thoughts uh, on where we think the heavyweight title is, where we think boxing is generally, and why we think it's that way. So I don't know, Andrew, if you have anything to add, but I would imagine where we want to start is with sort of the last great heavyweight champion, and that would be Mike Tyson. Sure. So I believe the last time we, we the last thing we touched on was we really talked about sort of Ali era and some of the other players in that Frazier and Foreman and Norton. And where that kind of leads off is, is Larry Holmes, who was really the transition. He was the champion in the, in the early 80s. After he, you know, and, and he got a lot of criticism for not being those guys, specifically Muhammad Ali. And, you know, a lot's been discussed about him having that fight with Ali late in Ali's career and, you know, basically having to beat up his hero, waiting for the ref to stop the fight and didn't. But after Holmes, there's a period of almost like what you see now, where at this point we have the sanctioning bodies, the WBA, the WBC, the IBF, which were the three major sanctioning bodies. And it really kind of gets a little crazy. You have some names in the early part of the 80s that nobody would recognize. Guys like Mike Weaver and Michael Dokes and Tim Witherspoon, all having claimed to one or more titles at that time. And then that ends up with Trevor Burbick, who was the WBC champion. And just to set the, the sort of stage for boxing at this point, you know, HBO boxing began in 1973, actually, with that George Foreman, Joe Frazier fight. So there were still fights on networks, but, you know, things had moved to HBO. A lot of the big fights, the Thrill in Manila was broadcast by HBO. Some of the Sugar Ray Leonard, Thomas Hitman Hearns fights were on HBO. So HBO had really started taking the mantle as the place for boxing. And that would lead into pay-per-view, and then that would lead into too many pay-per-views going to be a part of what we talk about going forward but what you had that really unified things back again after the early 80s was mike tyson 
on November 22nd, 1986, Mike Tyson beats Trevor Burbick to win the WBC championship. He would then, in short order, unify all three major titles. Uh, first take the WBC title from Pinklin Thomas and then beating Tyrell Biggs to win all, to unify all three titles by 1987. So you have a thing where, once again, you have a champion who owns all the belts and became also a really a cultural figure, almost like nobody had ever seen before in the late 80s with Mike Tyson. It's really hard to come up with any kind of comparison to him, isn't it? Honestly, the best comparison is Hulk Hogan in a lot of ways. There's really not another boxing comparison. It's funny because I love old baseball. I love talking about Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb and Mel Ott. And we talked about, in our first episode, we talked about Sammy Baugh and Bobby Orr and all of, you know, Bob Pettit and all of these names that are sort of neat things I've read about in books and learned about. This is different for me because I remember a lot of this. And I, I remember it sort of the way you remember something that was when you were a kid, you know, I was eight years old, seven years old when Tyson lost the title. So I, I do sort of, I have memories of this, not just from what I've read about, but from what I actually remember. And you're right. Tyson was that kind of figure. He was a, a larger than life figure. He was on video games. He just, he was just there. And you're right. Ali, had the politics and Ali had the sort of showmanship. Tyson was just this larger than life figure. He wasn't a personality as much as he was just a force. If that makes any sense. At first. Yeah. And then it's, you start to see more, you know, he's got the voice, which it's almost weird to talk about Mike Tyson from the eighties now, because he's been really a pop culture figure for better or for worse for 35 years at this point. So you, it's hard not to think of him as, you know, the guy with the face tattoo who was in the hangover and, and all of that stuff. But, you know, just talking about him in the late eighties, this guy who came out of nowhere, he'd been living up in Catskill, New York, escaped a really rough childhood in Brooklyn and lived with Customato and, and, and really all of these things. And then again, the, spoke in a really high-pitched, lispy voice, but then was this dominant figure and came out to the ring in just like a plain black towel, usually no ornate robes like boxers wear and, and that kind of thing. And after he wins the heavyweight title, he really, so he unifies the belts and this kind of then became the era of just knockouts. You know, people would watch him and I'm going to name some of the guys he was beating and people weren't really looking for classic fight he would start knocking guys out in you see a sixth round knockout here a seventh round knockout beat larry holmes in the fourth round tony tubbs in the second round michael spinks in 1988 you know his toughest challenger to date at that point and he knocked him out a minute 31 seconds into the fight frank bruno in the fifth round Cara williams in the first round a minute and 33 seconds in in 1989 so you know, at this point, the fights are mostly on HBO and, and HBO pay-per-view, but sort of he was such a force and the way he would knock guys out was such a force that people would get together and buy these pay-per-views and 
it was a party to watch him beat a guy in a minute and a half. So many interesting things about Tyson. First of all, I guess we should mention that as we record this in October of 2020, he's talking about training for a comeback. I, I think he's in his 50s, but he's talking about training for a comeback. So who knows? He may do it. A guy who probably is much more complex than you might think at first glance, a, a well-read man, believe it or not, somebody who was very much a student of boxing history, knows about Ali, knows about Dempsey, knows about Marciano, knows about what came before him. So a man who, a troubled person, somebody who knows a lot about not just his sport, but about the world around him actually hosts a podcast I've listened to once or twice. So in his later life, he's become a much more nuanced and complex figure. But at the time, he was basically just looked upon as a killer and somebody who, if we're being totally fair, had a lot of issues emotionally and mentally. Now, I think the question is, and I'm sure we'll get to this, he is the last great American heavyweight. Uh, Holyfield, As, it depends on where you want to put Holyfield. I guess I'm talking more about in the line of fighters that began with John L. Sullivan, cultural icons. Okay, yeah, fair enough. And to me, the Holyfield's a damn good boxer. He's probably again. I'm not an expert on a on the in the ring aspect of this, but Holyfield's probably top. I don't know, twelve. I don't know. We, we could we could maybe list that out at some point in the future. But Tyson is the last great icon, like Ali, Marciano, Dempsey, Sullivan, Lewis, all these guys. What's an interesting question is. And I think the answer to this is no, because I think this, what's gone on is more about cultural and economic forces and just sort of the march of history. Would things be different if Tyson was a guy who wasn't quite so unstable during his time in the headlines? I don't know. Maybe I, I think what the stuff we're about to talk about is is what really. So, you know, when I talked, when I mentioned before, oh, fights were on HBO now, and you hear people talk about, you know, I said at the top of last week's episode about uh, some of this stuff being unavoidable. Boxing no longer being on ABC was unavoidable. For any of the mistakes boxing made, certainly too many pay per views, I think, is is one of them. There's no scenario that exists where in the present day there is still a weekly or monthly boxing show on prime time in on network television. And all you need to look at is that network television now, I mean, outside of the NFL, even the playoffs for most of these sports are not on network television in prime time on weeknights until the championship round. The NBA playoffs are on TNT and ESPN until the finals. MLB playoffs are on TBS and Fox Sports 1 for the most part until the World Series, and then it's on Fox. Same thing with the NBC and the NHL. Make it seem like, oh, if Foxing had made all the right decisions, you'd still be watching 
50 million people would be watching boxing on a Thursday night. This is not how things work anymore. But yeah, there, there are things that we're going to start with basically from the second Tyson lost to Buster Douglas that lead us almost directly to where we are now. So Tyson is this cultural force. He's this boxing force. He's on a video game and he goes to Japan and he loses to Buster Douglas in an alternate world. That might actually be good because it builds a little interest. Tyson gets to take his title back and, you know, suddenly now you're going to have a big rematch to, to build up to. Instead, Tyson fights a few fights and before he can get back to Buster Douglas, he is then convicted of sexual assault. So, again, stripping that part of it out and just talking about the boxing time frame he loses to Buster Douglas, who, again, is not a particular fighter of particular acclaim. Buster Douglas loses the title almost immediately, but the champion loses, the huge cultural figure loses, and then he's basically gone. He's gone for a long time, although his name will pop up again fairly soon here. Douglas has it, and then Douglas loses to... That basically leads us into the Evander Holyfield era, is what I was trying to say. And Holyfield is a very good boxer. He does from for a time and from 90 to 92, he's got all three belts, which is going to continue to be a big thing as we talk about here, which is sanctioning bodies and the difference between a champion and a title holder. So Holyfield is still in keeping with that tradition of being considered the lineal heavyweight champion. But then what we have is Holyfield losing to Riddick Bowe. And this is where it starts to get really interesting. Before you move on from Tyson, I think it's something else is that's worth noting. And we're talking about perception here. We're not talking about sort of what did or didn't happen with Tyson. That's, a, you know, that, that that's sort of beyond our purview here. In some ways, this sort of changes the way everyday people think about boxing. If this guy who was sort of our hero is now being perceived as a violent rapist, that kind of shifts the way people are looking at the sport. And that goes along with all of these other things that are happening. Exactly. So I think that's sort of worth noting as well. That's a, that's a great point. So sort of into that void comes Holyfield, and then Holyfield loses the title, and Riddick Bowe is the champion. and. And this, you talk about some of the things you remember, you know, you being three to three and a half years older than me, remember, obviously, things starting a little earlier. This is the first thing on this list that I definitively remember, which is in December of 1992, Riddick Bowe, who had all three championships, he had the IBF championship, the WBC, and the WBA, three main championships, and for the most part had been unified, and whenever they weren't unified, they did their best to reunify them. Riddick Bowe forfeited the WBC championship by virtue of throwing it in the garbage. And the reason for that was because the WBC was trying to impose a mandatory challenger on him who he did not want to face. So the quote was, the WBC is wrong and I will not be intimidated by them. I am the heavyweight champion of the world and today I withdraw my recognition of the WBC. I am stripping them. If Lewis wants the belt, he has to get it out of the garbage. Then we will call him garbage picker. And then WBC count, you know, they stripped him of the title and gave it to Lennox Lewis. And that led to a permanent 
and what ended up being a nearly permanent fracture in the heavyweight title. So you now no longer had, certainly Bo had a claim to it because he wasn't beaten in the ring for it, but you now had another major sanctioning body promoting a heavyweight champion. And if you're a casual fan or somebody who doesn't follow it that much, you don't know why there's two heavyweight champions. All right, let's take a deep breath here. There's a lot. So first of all, I remember this. I remember watching this on SportsCenter, probably with you, and wondering what had happened. And as a 10-year-old, obviously, there were a lot of things that I didn't understand. But I remember when this happened. I think it speaks to the level of corruption that probably had always been there. Certainly had always been there going back to the Jack Johnson. Did he throw a fight? And, you know, even before that to John L. Sullivan, boxing has never been a cleanly run business. No, But I think when you have in the modern era, these institutions that are only concerned about the future of the institution that leads to a lack of public trust. And so the ordinary fan is somebody who is not going to understand all this. And they're probably only going to shell out $65 for a championship fight that actually is seen as a championship fight as opposed to okay, this is just one of three or four championships. Yeah, and they're definitely not going to shell out 65 bucks twice in three months, let's say, to see what they consider the same championship defended by two different guys against two different opponents. You also raise a point about Lewis and Bo, and Bo talking about throwing the title in the garbage, and I had not heard of that, so this is sort of an off-the-cuff point that I'm making. This, I think, also sort of marks... A little bit of the period where all of a sudden everybody was a trash talker. And so something that when just Ali does it or just Tyson does it is something of a novelty. When everybody is a wrestling villain, it starts to feel like the Jerry Springer show and not a sport. Exactly. And so you turn off, you turn off sports fans, but then people who are more into sort of the WWE type of thing and look lifelong wrestling fan, not here, not saying this with any sort of denigration like people who are interested in more of the sort of pro wrestling aspect of it probably want to see a fight that lasts more than a round or two. So I think this is where boxing sort of gets to that point where they're neither fish nor foul and it's not entirely sport in the public perception. This is, but it's also not dramatic enough in the ring to qualify as wrestling, no, you, you know, or, or something similar to wrestling. You're right, because you need a really good story to get people to buy a pay-per-view, but you also need to acknowledge the fact that, well, we have this pay-per-view and there might be, the fight might be over in a minute and a half. And if that's a possibility, you really need a compelling story, uh, which is why Tyson... You know, those fights in the 80s, Tyson was such a force and such a novelty. I mean, I mean, he was a novel thing in the in the sport and in the culture 
people would buy, pay the money and not mind if the fight ended in two minutes. But when you get to less compelling guys and a watered-down version of the title, that's going to entirely disappear. And unless you're delivering great boxing, which you can't guarantee, you got, you got nothing. I assume you want to talk about the Tyson-Holyfield fight next, but I think we should just make time for another brief digression about George Foreman. Yeah, I'm going to get to him in one second. I just, I want to, I want to um, reference, uh, just to, for anybody who doesn't, maybe not, doesn't know what a sanctioning body is, and, you know, now given all these alphabet soup thing, that's only got worse from the time period we're talking about. Basically, suddenly you had three bodies that put on boxing matches or awarded titles. You had the WBA, the WBC, and the IBF. They were three tep- separate groups, and they all had their own belt. So they decided who was going to be their champion. And they had a, there was a lot of things where each sanctioning body would come up with a mandatory challenger. So in this case, it was the WBC wanted Riddick Bowe to fight Lennox Lewis. Now, Lennox Lewis became a hugely successful and influential boxer, so... It doesn't sound as ridiculous, but if you have three different belts and you have three different sanctioning bodies telling you you have to fight three different guys within 90 days or you're going to be stripped of that title, you can't do that. You're going to be stripped of at least one of those titles in that situation. So that's the real negative impact. So then champion A has three different belts and he has to forfeit one of them because he's not interested in fighting their mandatory challenger. Now that champion's got a belt of a guy who didn't lose, you know, who didn't beat anybody. So he's got a belt, but who, why is he the champion? He just was awarded a championship. He didn't beat the last champion. And some of that's unavoidable with injuries and retirements and things like that. But when more than half of the guys are champions because a sanctioning body handed them the belt, you don't really have a champion. And that's sort of the overarching problem with having this many sanctioning bodies who are not at all interested in working together to unify the title. And I think that in some ways, the market is not your friend here. A monopoly is probably a good thing in this case, because once you have three different sanctioning bodies with three different champions, why not four? Why not five? And so even just looking at the list of champions here, scrolling down, I just keep seeing new acronyms popping up. Then you see the WBO, which that's why I was getting a little confused before, because that was not a major title. But then suddenly they were, and then it was a question of if they should be considered that or not. It just, it became a mess. And the answer to this, and we'll we'll get to this towards the end, because I do think that too many people reduce this to an either-or proposition. But like you were saying, with a monopoly being better, you look at the UFC. The UFC is not a sport. It's a company. And some people call any kind of mixed martial arts UFC fighting, but the sport is mixed martial arts, and there are other companies. But the UFC has one set of belts, and they've been able to sort of corner the market on being what all of these sanctioning bodies tried to become, which was our champions are the recognized champion. But mixed martial arts and UFC was a new sport. Boxing, these boxing sanctioning bodies weren't going to redefine people's understanding of boxing after 100 plus years to say like, oh, no, only care about our title. So you mentioned Foreman, and I'll, I'll lead you into this. On, on So George Foreman wins the title or a version of the title from Michael Moore. He wins the 
version that Bo had had. So he's now a double champion. He's got the WBA and the IBF. And then he forfeits the WBA. So suddenly now he's got the IBF title and nobody has more than one belt. Foreman is the one who you can kind of trace back to Bo had three and then forfeited one. And then Foreman ended up with two and lost one. But you now have no person who holds more than one belt. And on top of that, and I think this is where you might have wanted to go, while it was neat to see George Foreman as a big, fat, bald guy who could barely move, land a lucky punch, and knock out Michael Moore for the championship, it really didn't do any favors to the perception of boxing in a lot of people's eyes that a guy who looked like that was now the world heavyweight champion. If Derek Jeter were to come back next season and hit 340, it would be a cool story, but then it would also be what's up with what's up with baseball. You know, people talk about Michael Jordan and could he still play to, today? If Michael Jordan actually came back and scored 23 points a game and led his team to the finals, yeah, it would be cool, but it would also say what is this sport turning into? That was kind of what it was like with Foreman. It was a neat story. But you had a guy who was 45 years old, and also he wasn't a 45-year-old who was in shape. He was a fat guy. Yeah. He was a happy fat guy, which is funny because in his earlier career, he was known as like this really surly guy. But in the long run, I think it did damage to the sport because it was perceived that a guy like that could win. And not just win, but win the title. Yeah, and I mean, and also he, if you've watched that fight, he lands a lucky punch, which that's the one place like a Jeter analogy doesn't work because you obviously can't do that in real, you know, in a, in a sport mm-hmm. over and over. But he got lucky. He landed a lucky punch, and he's tried to spin that ever since that he had a strategy. And Michael Moore, pretty profanely, anytime that comes up, says, no, he got lucky. And that, that, that is what happened. We landed the one big punch. But in a sport that was already dealing with a credibility crisis, it w- that wasn't going to do much more than make like the Today Show call it a good story. My mother wasn't going to become a big... She might have saw that and said, like, oh, that's neat that he was able to win or whatever. That wasn't going to turn people like that into boxing fans. So he wins. Tyson gets out. I I don't know if you were going to touch on this because it's sort of a blip on the screen, but this is another one of those things that I remember. Did you have any plans to talk about the Riddick Bowe, Andrew Golata fight? No, but what year was that? 96. Okay, so talk about that, and that's going to set up the next thing I want to talk about. So on top of all of these things, you're starting to have the perception that boxing is a circus with the various sanctioning bodies, and then just some of the cartoon characters circulating around it. Don King with the hair, George Foreman, Tyson. And then you start to see things like the next few fights we're going to talk about where there was just chaos. So go ahead. A lot of guys who'd been in jail for one reason or another, either because they did something violent or they stole money that they shouldn't have stolen, basically is the two big reasons. And so there was this... Riddick Bowe, who we talked about before, he had, I don't know, his whole thing was interesting. He tried to join the Marines, and it was just a really, he was managed by a guy named Rock Newman, who not 
no relation to the hosts of the podcast, <laughs> but another guy who was just sort of this guy who was like half a businessman, but then also half a grifter. And they had a fight, and I, I don't, I'm trying to remember where this fight was. It might have even been, it was at MSG. It was MSG July of 96. And basically what happened was that Andrew Galata, who was a Polish fighter, and Riddick Bowe, who was a former heavyweight champion, Galata kept punching Bowe in the crotch and was eventually disqualified for it. But then in the aftermath of the fight, the cornermen started fighting each other. One of Bo's cornermen pushed Golata. Somebody hit somebody else with a cell phone, which 25 years ago, a cell phone is basically like the kind of thing I do an arm workout with now. It was not a small item by any means. Lou Duva, who was Galata's trainer, was 74 years old, and somebody threw him to the ground, and he had chest pains. And so the average viewer is just watching this, and it's like, what the hell did I pay my money for? What is this? And why would I ever believe in the efficacy of this sport again? At the beginning of the first episode, you referred to boxing as the sweet science I don't think anybody would describe what you're referring to here as the sweet science. No, and it just, it feeds into every perception of the sport and its corruption and the people involved in it. And then you get Tyson and Holyfield about, I think about nine months later, and that's just sort of the death knell. Yeah, so let's touch on that. So this is Tyson Holyfield 2 from June of 97. They had fought once, maybe a year or so before that, when Holyfield had uh, beaten Tyson. And Tyson, or Holyfield did have a reputation for headbutting. Obviously, boxing, there's going to be accidental headbutts, but there, enough people had said it that he, that he had a reputation for trying to get away with some headbutts. But that's not to excuse what happened. So just to, everybody kind of knows what happened, but just to go blow by blow here from Wikipedia. 32 seconds into the second round, Holyfield ducked under a right from Tyson. In doing so, he headbutted Tyson, opening a large cut over the latter's right eye. Tyson had complained about headbutting in the first bout. Upon reviewing replays, referees Mills Lane stated the headbutts were unintentional, so he didn't take a point or disqualify. As the third round began, Tyson came out of his corner without his mouthpiece. Lane ordered Tyson back to his corner to insert it. Tyson inserted it got back into position, and the match resumed. Tyson began the third round with a furious attack. 40 seconds remaining in the round, Holyfield clinched Tyson. Tyson rolled his head above Holyfield's shoulder, and he bit Holyfield on his right ear. The bite avulsed, which I don't know what that word means, a one-inch piece of cartilage from the top of the ear, and Tyson spat the piece of ear onto the floor. Holyfield shrieked in pain and jumped in circles, managed to push Tyson away. Lane called for a timeout. As Holyfield turned to walk to the corner, Tyson shoved him from behind. Holyfield gestured at Mills Lane to look at his bitten ear, which was bleeding profusely. Fight was delayed for several minutes. Lane immediately, uh, originally called for disqualification, but when the doctor said Holyfield could continue, Lane announced he'd deduct two points from Tyson and the fight would continue. Tyson asserted that the injury to Holyfield's ear was the result of a punch. Lane said the word BS. Fight resumed. And then during another clinch, Tyson bit Holyfield's left ear and that scarred the ear and lane did not stop the fight 
because Lane didn't know. Second bite was discovered. Lane stopped the fight. And then Tyson went on a rampage at Holyfield and his trainer. And it just, you know, obviously there was some consternation after that. And there was 25 minutes before they announced the official decision. So there's not one part of that that doesn't damage boxing in everyone's eyes. I mean, the reason I read that blow for blow like that is because people have sort of, you know, it's, it's become such a part of the like fabric of, oh yeah, and that Tyson bit the guy's ear. When you sort of lay it out exactly how that went down, it's surreal. Do you know what the craziest part of that whole story is? That. They're friends now. <laughs> they hang out. Like I, I was in research. There's like a video of like them running into each other at the grocery store and like hugging. Holyfield was on Tyson's podcast. It's, it's just so funny how they're like they're buddies, which is weird. And I mean, I know it's strangely religious, so maybe that was part of it, like forgiveness. Yeah, and I get that, but it's just, it's so crazy. The other thing that's funny is that the guy who kind of came out of it looking the best was Mills Lane, because remember, he he had his own Judge Wapner type people's court thing, and he was just, he was the referee in a lot of video games, and then he was also the referee, he was the voice of the referee in Celebrity Deathmatch, which was huge like deal on mtv for a couple of years it was like claymation fighting it was really gory but it was his voice you know he became a part of the cultural firmament but you know and again as much as you can say like oh well before we were talking about boxing being culturally relevant this was not for the right reasons yeah and at some point i guess it was around this point tyson when was Tyson featured heavily in WrestleMania? Was that 98. 98? So right after that. So the sport seems like a joke. Its biggest star seems like a joke. And then I even remember a couple years later, and this was right before I went to college. So it was the summer of 2001. And I don't even know if this necessarily was a heavyweight fight, but I just remember watching ESPN and there was a f- two guys who were supposed to fight each other. And all of a sudden, just on the set, they were just beating the heck out of each other. And, you know, whoever the, the anchor, the host was, was trying to get them to stop. But I think this is sort of the beginning of trying to sell these fights with out of the ring chaos, as opposed to anything that's actually going to go on in the ring. Well, and, and that became the thing, too, is, you know, Tyson, there was a couple of the, the brawls, like when he fought um, when he fought Lewis in 2002, which was a huge deal. But, you know, there was the brawl at the press conference, and then suddenly there were brawls at every press conference, and it was obvious, like, okay, if this is happening every time, it's not legit, you know what I mean? And it's like they were trying to sell every fight by saying these two guys really don't like each other. And it's, again, if you're going to push that button every time, eventually nothing comes out when you push the button. And that it kind of becomes a thing of, like I said, that this Tyson-Lewis thing, and there's a common denominator here, but the Tyson-Holyfield, the ear thing, became a huge deal. And the Tyson-Lewis fight was a huge deal going into that. I, I That was a, a fight that I spent a lot of time reading about because I was really into boxing at the time. And you know, the fact that the two companies, because Tyson had a, a deal with Showtime pay-per-view and Lewis was an HBO fighter, you know, they had to coordinate who was going to call the the matches and stuff. And it was like, but of course, again, there was, 
you know, the, the thing in the press conference with the brawl and some of the comments Tyson made is like, even the stuff that built interest was doing at best a net neutral on it because of all the shenanigans and problems that surrounded some of the guys, especially Tyson. And Tyson became so much more of a cartoonish character with some of the things he said. The, the two that sort of come out the most are when he was talking about, I don't even know who he was talking about, but when he goes, I, I, I want his heart. I want to eat his children. Praise be to Allah. I was going to rip his heart out. I'm the best ever. I'm the most brutal and vicious and most ruthless champion there's ever been. There's no one can stop me. Lynx is a conqueror. No, I'm Alexander. He's no Alexander. I'm the best ever. There's never been anybody as ruthless. I'm Sonny Liston. I'm Jack Dempsey. There's no one like me. I'm from Nairclaw. There's no one that can match me. My style is impetuous. My defense is impregnable. And I'm just ferocious. I want your heart. I want to eat his children. Praise be to Allah. That was the interview he did to set up the Lewis fight. That was his, whenever he beat whatever guy he before he fought Lewis in 02, that was his I'm coming after you, Lennox speech. And I would almost describe it as a good promo, like a wrestling promo, but that's, as much as I love wrestling, I'm in the same camp with you, like, there's a difference. And when you need to have a clear, if you're going to have a bad guy of that magnitude, you need to have a clear good guy. And the problem is they're really you know, even though Lennox Lewis was an accomplished fighter, there really wasn't that. So it, it ultimately probably did more harm than good, just like the, the Foreman thing and some of this other stuff we're talking about. But the fight I want to circle back to, and this is really, you talk about circuses, and this one did so much damage. We're going to go to March 13th, 1999, Madison Square Garden. We mentioned with Riddick Bowe, and really for the better part of the last seven years at this point, the heavyweight title had been fractured. At first, it was the WBC broke off, and then you had where everybody had three, you know, three different holders had three different belts. But we're going to settle all that on March 13th, 1999, when Lennox Lewis, who holds the WBA and the IBF championship, is going to face Evander Holyfield, or excuse me, Evander Holyfield has the WBA and the IBF championship, and then Lennox Lewis, who's the WBC champion and is also recognized as the lineal champion, you know, the real champion, are going to face off at Madison Square Garden with each title on the line, and somebody's going to walk out the undisputed heavyweight champion for the first time in a very, very long time. And what we got at the end of that fight, at the end of a 12-round fight, which was, you know, you can watch the fight, the HBO broadcast, Larry Merchant and Jim Lampley and everything are, are saying with a minute left, they're saying one minute until a unified heavyweight champion. Lennox Lewis clearly won the fight. It was a clear, unanimous decision for Lennox Lewis. And instead we got one judge ruled at 116-113 for Lewis, which was probably, I think most of the ringside people had it even a little more tilted than 116-113. Larry O'Connell scored at 115-115 draw, and then Eugenia Williams impossibly scored the fight 115-113 for Lewis. So the title is going to be unified unless there's a draw, resulted in a draw, which almost immediately people recognized as the sanctioning bodies doing everything they can to keep the titles. You know. The, the fight was not on the level. The decision was not on the level. 
the woman Eugenia Williams was almost certainly going to award the fight to Holyfield under any circumstances and just a total travesty. And then on top of that, the heavyweight title stayed fractured. And it's really hard to have a draw in a three-judge system because you either have to have all three judges rule in a draw or you have to have what happened, well, which is one for each and then a draw. Well, you if you have two, technically, and I don't actually like this, but if two judges rule it a draw and one judge rules it for a fighter, it's a draw. It's it's called the majority draw because that's a little silly. Yeah, because two, but I guess because the majority of the judges ruled it a draw. I don't like that, but that is the rule. This was like a split draw where it was one, one, and one. But it uh, kind of it kind of feels like people who end up in positions in the government only because they have political connections. I remember kind of even as a teenager having that feeling at the time is basically there were people as judges who maybe weren't qualified to be judges. Yeah, well, that's so I'm just a, a little of the sort of right away on HBO announcers, Jim Lampley and George Foreman called the decision a travesty and a shame. I remember Lampley right after they announced we have a unanimous earth, we have a, a draw. He, he went, that's a travesty. The Showtime analyst said, I've been covering boxing 20 years. I'd put this in the top five of the worst decisions I've seen. Even New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani weighed in calling the decision a travesty. Even the judge, although she initially denied any wrongdoing, after reviewing a replay of the fight, she stated she would have called the fight a draw. And the British judge who ruled it a draw, he said he made a mistake, stating, I feel sorry for myself. I've taken so much stick, but I feel even more sorry for Lennox. So. Yeah, they apologize because it blew up, but it was clear that, I mean, you don't have to be a boxing expert to watch that and, and know who won the fight. And it was the one scenario where everybody walks out still with their belts, and that's what's happened. I don't think the fighters were in on it. I don't think it was a fixed fight or anything along those lines from the fighters' standpoint, but it was also not just a case of bad judging. It was clearly corrupt to some degree. I think if you're inclined to look at things a certain way, you're going to find reasons to look at them that way. And so if there's a judge who has an interest in one reason or another in Holyfield keeping the belt, she is going to look for reasons. She may not even know herself that she's looking at it in a biased way. But if you're inclined to look at it that way, you're going to look at it that way. Yeah. Are there other sort of – before we kind of get into – the current state of play. Are there other specific instances that you want to talk about before we kind of talk about how things are right now? So I want to just finish up a couple of things on Lennox Lewis, because they did have a rematch and Lewis did win the rematch and ended up with all three belts. And then he was basically immediately stripped of one of the titles so that the title went basically back to being fractured again i'm trying to pull up the exact details on that but uh oh yeah uh lewis again locked horns this time in las vegas in november of 99 lewis became the undisputed heavyweight champion but in one of the oddest scenarios he was quickly stripped of the wba title by a court and the title was returned to holyfield and then just sort of the very end of it 
you know, you still at this point, everybody recognized Lennox Lewis was the real heavyweight champion, whether he had all the belts or not. But then his last fight, he was under no obligation to have somebody beat him in the ring before he retired. But that was really what boxing needed was a new universally recognized champion after Lewis. And in his last fight against Vitaly Klitschko, one of the Klitschko brothers, Klitschko was holding his own against him, either tied or beating him after six rounds, but he had a gruesome cut over his eye, so the fight was stopped, and then Lewis retired, and that the last sort of guy with any legitimate claim to being a champion was gone, and it was basically impossible to get it back at that point. Agreed. So you talked about Klitschko. I think that that, and in a certain extent, you know, you obviously, you have to be a little bit careful about how you talk about this because it, I don't think it's it implies a prejudice on the part of any fan in the United States. But when you have a sport that, let's be honest, most people are not going to go to these fights. No. They're in Vegas or they're somewhere abroad and it's these, this isn't Yankee Stadium or Madison Square Garden where they're holding these fights. These are smaller venues with limited seating. To be a boxing fan in this day and age implies watching it on TV. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, much more often than not, shelling out $60, $70 to purchase it on TV and I think at a certain extent, it's sort of stopped feeling like an American sport. So unless you're somebody who just really loves boxing, it would be like paying $70 to watch a soccer match from Italy. Because it's just not, there's no American element to any of this. And that's one of the last things to discuss here is because, so you have the um, you have the Klitschko brothers who at one point, between the two of them, they do have all of the major belts. But... You know, and they were certainly more marketable than some of the guys who came after them from the former Russian bloc countries and things like that. They were brothers. They both had PhDs. They were Ukrainian. They were they were easier to sell. But the fact of the matter is, neither of them were Americans. Obviously, if one of them wasn't, they weren't. They didn't have it. The only thing they could have done that would have really generated a ton of mainstream interest would have been to fight each other especially when they both accounted for all of the championships. But they said they would never do it. They kept their word. And to be honest, it's understandable. Like Serena and Venus Williams play each other in tennis multiple times a year in tournaments. That doesn't involve punching people in the face. They both were never going to fight each other. And that was the only thing that they could have done that really would have generated mainstream interest, which was two twin brothers big Ukrainian guys fighting each other. And then they became so dominant that not only were they not American, they got to points where they wouldn't even fight in America. Most of their fights were in Germany or the Ukraine. So not only were they not here, they were in unfamiliar arenas with unfamiliar ring announcers. A lot of times they were on at three o'clock in the afternoon and they would broadcast them later, but it was just not, it was not what was going to bring things back. I think that's true. I also think that there are reasons in American culture why maybe you don't see many American fighters. We're at the point now where you're hearing 
and not that everybody, anybody was ever under the illusion that boxing was safe, but when we're hearing all of these concerns about head trauma in sports, like not just football, but even soccer and hockey and some of these other sports, it's always been the case that if you have another way of making a living that doesn't involve getting punched in the head repeatedly, you're probably going to do it. And that's why early on it was Irish and Italian immigrants or sons of immigrants and then heavily represented in the African-American community. You have folks who are sort of sociologically not on the top rungs of society using this as a way to get ahead. And you're still seeing that. Unfortunately, most of it is not coming from American citizens or people with any ties to this country. So there's really very little American interest in boxing, not just from a fan point of view, from a point of view of actually getting involved in it and fighting. Yeah. And, you know, and then just a, a couple of, of other things on top of that. And we mentioned yeah, they, they were on too many pay-per-views and you know the sanctioning bodies and the mandatory challengers and not having a lot of American heavyweights, you know, and, and just in boxers in general, it's a lot of, like you said, there's a lot of lighter boxers from the Latin American countries and you see guys from Africa and the Middle East and it's a much more worldwide sport, but that also, it's tough to, to get next to if you're an American because you don't know as much about the guys. It's hard to latch onto their story. There's no thing of, oh, this guy came from my state or my area or whatever. And then, you know, there's there's just a few other things. And after the Klitschko's, basically, it, it became even more Russians and, and guys from Belarus and guys from Uzbekistan. And at least the Klitschko's were sort of skilled boxers, and it was them for long periods of time. Now it's just sort of an interchangeable, revolving door of different guys for the heavyweight title, most of whom are not American or are not recognizable to Americans. But a couple of other things that I think are sort of, like I said, some of this stuff is, is a little unavoidable. It was never going to be as popular as it was just because it's not 1958 anymore and there's so many different options and things like that. But there has been recently some, in the, recently meaning in the last 10 or 15 years, big fights that do garner people's attention, but they're not heavyweight fights. You went back really since the late 90s most of the fighters who have been big deals have not been heavyweights. Oscar De La Hoya, Floyd Mayweather, Manny Pacquiao, Roy Jones Jr., although he went up to heavyweight for one fight. But in general, those have been the guys who've done big money, and they've been in sort of the middleweight, welterweight category. So it does prove that boxing's not all the way lifeless but i don't think they have i think the heavyweight division is pretty much gone beyond repair and then just sort of a couple other things that i don't know if they've rectified them in the last few years but everything with boxing is going to be viewed in this day and age through the lens of mma ufc you know you you walk into a, a buffalo wild wings anywhere in the country and you see ufc signs all over the place it's part of their deal they show ufc pay-per-views People know if you drive by a, a Buffalo Wild Wings on a Saturday night when there's MMA on, or I keep saying MMA, but UFC, you know you can go in there and watch that fight. They did the same thing with pro wrestling for a long time until some things changed with pro wrestling, but all of these companies were willing to do this with boxing. One time, about 10 years ago, right after I moved back to New York, I went to a, a Buffalo Wild Wings and also another sports bar to try to see if they had a boxing pay-per-view on, and they told them basically that boxing 
the charges boxing cost boxing charges the promotion companies do to these restaurants and and places to show their fights makes it basically cost prohibitive. So again, yeah, people might not be willing to spend $70 to go to pay for a boxing match in their home, especially if, you know, now that boxing's less popular, you know less people who are boxing fans to sort of spread the cost out, but they might go to a bar or a restaurant and have dinner and watch, you know, watch a fight. But if boxing which is something they might have been doing that night anyway. Yeah, going to a restaurant. Yeah. And boxing just was so far behind the times in cutting deals with even if it wasn't for these one, you know, individual places, you do it with a chain like a Buffalo Wild Wings, and you're at least getting people seeing your product. So those people are either going to go home and not watch the fight, or they're just going to go on the internet and steal the fight. So that was sort of stuff that that was boxing's fault. You know, some of it was, like I said, unavoidable, changing demographics and changing sort of viewing habits and things like that. But that's nothing but them shooting themselves in their own foot over greed and ending up with nothing. So, yeah, I mean, honestly, I think, and maybe I'm just ignorant to the business model, I think they should just let these bars rent by the buy the fight like anybody else would and show it. You know, maybe that's a little bit cheap, but the number of people, like you said, who are likely going to actually buy it, I feel like if somebody was inclined to buy it, they'd buy it. I think the number of people who you get who would say, well, if I can't see it in a bar, I'll go home and buy it, I think is a very small number. Bars going back to the 50s have always sort of been a place where people who could not watch something on television would go to watch something, whether that was in the 50s when people didn't have TV and they wanted to watch baseball I read a few years ago about how in the 90s when NYPD Blue came out and it was censored by some ABC affiliates, bars with satellite dishes had people come to watch NYPD Blue, closed circuit in wrestling. You know, I almost feel like these bars or that these federations should just, you know, charge the bar twice as much. Like the idea that they're that there's some level of competition where these people would all be going home and paying. $75 for a fight just feels ridiculous to me. The other thing that I would note, and this two things actually, and these are both sort of not necessarily boxing. These are not necessarily heavyweight specific, but they're two things that I think are worth noting. And then I'll leave it. I'll, I'll turn it over to you for the end. Cause I know you want to talk a little bit about UFC, but two things that occur to me, first of all, and these both sort of come from looking at Floyd Mayweather's record. First of all, the guys fought in like five different weight classes, super featherweight, lightweight, light welterweight, welterweight, light middleweight. Nobody knows who any of these guys are, or what league they compete in. It would be like if the Giants or Jets played against Georgetown football this weekend, although this year that might not be a bad idea. But, you know, there's just, there's no... There's no league. There's no idea of what the universe is. And I think that something you're probably going to talk about is that that's what UFC has. I also look at Mayweather's record and I see that his final, other than the McGregor fight, which was also in Nevada, 11 in a row of his previous fights were all at the 
MGM in Paradise, Nevada. So it just it doesn't feel as much like a sport. You turn it on and it feels like a Vegas show. It doesn't feel like a sport. But and I want- and then the other thing. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, Mayweather was from Vegas, so there's a little bit there. But the other problem with all of that is they – I think because so many of them are in Vegas, but it's not solely because of that. These pay-per-views now, the main event is often not in the ring before midnight Eastern time. Even if you are going to go to a bar, and even if you are interested – and look, I'm not – I get frustrated with the start time things when people complain about it a little too much sometimes because I'm like – Listen, the World Series is not going to start at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You need to be a little more realistic about this stuff. But there's no reason on a Saturday night a boxing pay-per-view can't... First of all, they don't come on the air till 9 o'clock. There's no reason a boxing pay-per-view can't start at 7 o'clock Eastern Time and the main event is in the ring by 9.30 or 10 o'clock. There is no reason that the main event of a boxing match on a pay-per-view... I don't care where it is in America, needs to start at 12.45 in the morning. People, even somebody who might be interested in going to a bar, isn't going to stay for that. Well, that's the point I was going to raise, is when Mayweather fought Pacquiao in 15. I I don't remember specifically what my situation was. I think my my wife and I had done something that day, and we were tired or whatever, but... I remember going into work on Monday and a couple people who these people were not necessarily boxing fans, but they were like, yeah, you know, we had some friends that were getting the fight and we went over and it starts till after midnight. And it's like anybody under 15 or over 35 is not going to watch. And those are the people with the money. Yeah. So it's just, they, they just seem to have a, an odd business model. So we've said a lot here tonight. Did you want to talk uh, really quick to sort of wrap it up about UFC? So I was going to say, UFC has obviously taken a slice from boxing. Um, there are, especially if you're a younger person, you are, if you're interested in what they now call combat sports, you're much more likely to be into UFC. What I've kind of tried to illustrate with a lot of this is it's not, because sometimes people say like, oh, what happened to boxing? And you hear somebody go like, oh, UFC. First of all, the things we started talking about really started happening in the late 80s, early 90s. The UFC as it exists now is a relatively 21st century phenomenon. It began in the late 90s as basically no rules in lodges in Wyoming. And then when Dana White took it over, and I've never really been a UFC fan, but there's no doubt that he upped the... Professionalized it. Professionalized and prestige and all that. But as, as we've shown with a lot of this thing, this stuff, there could be room for both. Again, no doubt UFC's taken a slice from it, and UFC is in a very good position where... They right now are one company. And there are other companies, but nobody doubts that UFC is the supreme company. Boxing has never had that, so it wouldn't be something they could implement now. So that's just sort of a structural advantage. But if anything has shown, the big thing that got UFC on the map for a very long time was they had, and this just switched to ESPN, they had TV every week on Fox Sports and you know whatever Fox Sports was before that gone through certain permutations that they used to be on Spike TV and FX, but there was always a channel you could go to find UFC fighting. It wasn't going to be the big pay-per-views, but you basically, and I know there's Friday night fights, but Friday night's also not a night people are around a lot. Boxing has essentially disappeared from your television. Like modern boxing is almost impossible to find. It's easy to forget boxing exists. So if they were on cable television 
on a night that people watch TV, I do think that would help just get people sort of interested in the sport again. Now, those people aren't necessarily going to go right out and buy an $80 pay-per-view. They might two years from now or something like that. But So anyway, UFC, to me, if anything, what the success of USC shows is that that business model, which is still the same as boxing, it's not like a sport where there's games every day or week and that leads to playoffs and a championship. It's built around one guy trying to take a title from another guy. There's not a season is what I'm trying to say. If anything, boxing is should be shown by MMA and UFC here that there is still a market for your product in the way you want to present your product, meaning, you know, not like a season and home teams and things like that, like an event-based product. You just need to do it better. Boxing's problems are entirely boxing's, and UFC for them should show them that it's not the heavyweight division and the heavyweight title might be irreparably done, but they can still create some buzz if they just did things correctly. It's not like boxing was going great and the UFC just came and blew them out of the water and that was the end of boxing. It didn't help, but it wasn't the be-all and end-all like some people like to reduce it to. I agree. Wow. Well, this was a great two-episode journey into the heavyweight boxing title, its history, its relevance, and current lack thereof. I think it's definitely worth pursuing some of these great heavyweight champions who have been particularly noteworthy or relevant in the American psyche. I mentioned in the last episode about Paul Beston who did a book called The Boxing Kings, and he mentions, I believe it was seven champions who've held a particularly interesting role in American popular culture, and those are Sullivan, Johnson, Dempsey, Lewis, Marciano, Ali, and Tyson. So those seven, if not others, are certainly worth exploring in greater detail, but For now, we want to thank you all for coming on this journey with us. It was a nice change of pace from all the baseball that we'd done throughout October. So, Andrew, did you have anything else to add? No, I think we we covered everything we can. And, you know, if this episode gets a lot of popularity, maybe as a uh, sort of promo for it, you and I can box. Well, Christmas in our family does get pretty boring, so we're always looking for something. So, all right. Well, until next time, I want to thank you all for listening. Feel free to contact us, helloworldsports at gmail.com. And also, please tell your friends, subscribe, rate, leave comments, suggestions, anything you'd like. I'm Dan Newman. I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month 
for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.